Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. British Prime Minister Theresa May offered to resign yesterday if the British Parliament would just pass her Brexit deal. Another vote is anticipated soon. We're going to talk about May's strategic track record in a few moments here. But the parliamentary debate yesterday was pretty rich, and to get us in the mood to talk Brexit, here is about a five-minute excerpt from yesterday's debate. Questions to the Prime Minister, Stuart Hosey. I wish the Prime Minister well with the serious violence discussions he's having. However, Brexit is already costing the UK around a billion pounds a week in lost growth. And we know that 80% plus of the public are unhappy with the way in which this has been handled. This is not the fault of Guy Verhofstadt, Michel Barney, Donald Tusk, or any MP in this House voting according to the conscience. That fault lies with the Prime Minister, who is the architect of the withdrawal deal. So can she finally concede to the House? She is liable, responsible, culpable for the chaos which is the Brexit debacle and when she will be resigning. Uh, Honourable Gentleman, the Brexit deal delivers on the result of the referendum. Now, the Honourable Gentleman has a different view to me. I know he doesn't want to deliver on the result of the referendum. He wants to try and keep the United Kingdom in the European Union. 17.4 million people voted to take us out of the European Union, and that's what we're going to do. Jeremy Corbyn! Thank you, Mr Speaker. This chaotic and incompetent government has driven our country into chaos. You know the scale of the crisis, Mr Speaker, when the TUC and the CBI are united in writing to the Prime Minister saying that a plan B must be found to protect workers, the economy and the Irish border. My question on Monday went unanswered. So will the Prime Minister now say what is her plan B? Prime Minister! Can I say to the Right Honourable Gentleman, as he knows, we are continuing to work to ensure that we can deliver Brexit for the British people and guarantee that we deliver Brexit for the British people. We have a deal which cancels our EU membership fee, which stops the EU making our laws, which gives us our own immigration policy, ends the common agricultural policy for good, ends the common fisheries policy for good. Other options don't do that. Other options would lead to delay, to uncertainty and risk never delivering Brexit. Mr Speaker, the only problem with the Prime Minister's answer is that her deal has been twice defeated in this House by, in one case, Mr Speaker, the largest ever majority by which a government has lost a vote in our recorded parliamentary history. Earlier this week, Mr Speaker, the Business Minister resigned from the Government, saying the Government's approach to Brexit was playing roulette with the lives and livelihoods of the vast majority of the people of this country. Why is she prepared to carry on risking jobs and industry in another attempt to yet again run down the clock and try to blackmail the MPs behind her into supporting a deal that's already been twice rejected? say to the right honourable gentleman, we have been negotiating in order to protect jobs. What he says about a race to the bottom is wrong. As he well knows, we have been working across this House. It is absolutely clear in the political declaration that we agree to not falling back in workers' rights, but also we are a government that has enhanced workers' rights. The UK... 
the Labour Party can never stand it when they are told that Conservatives have stood up for workers. Because Conservative Party does. We've enhanced workers' rights. We stand up for workers with our tax cuts, with our national living wage, and with higher employment. Mr. Speaker, this country is on hold while the government is in complete paralysis. The vital issues facing our country, from the devastation of public services to homelessness to knife crime, have been neglected. The Prime Minister is failing to deliver Brexit because she can't build a consensus, is unable to compromise and unable to reunite the country. Instead, she's stoking further division, she is unable to resolve the central issues facing Britain today, and she is frankly unable to govern. The Prime Minister faces, Mr Speaker, a very clear choice. The one endorsed by the country and many of her own party, either listen and change course or go. Which is it to be? Yep. Prime Minister. Can I just say, the right honourable gentleman raises the question of the indicative votes tonight. I actually answered that question uh, in this House earlier this week. But he might want to talk to his shadow Brexit secretary, who's made clear that actually the Labour Party won't commit to uh, supporting the result of any of the indicative votes tonight. And then he talks about... And then he talks about... Then he talks about what's happening in this country. Well, let's just look at what is going to be happening in this country next week. (laughs) Nearly a billion pounds extra for the police. £1.4 billion more available for local councils. £1.1 billion extra for our schools. Another fuel duty freeze. Another rise in national living wage. Another tax cut. That's under the Conservatives. What would Labour give us? He wants to scrap Trident. He wants to pull out of NATO. It would give us Labour would give us capital flight, a run on the pound, a dropping living standards. The biggest, the biggest threat to our standing in the world, to our defence, and to our economy is sitting on the Labour front bench. There's British Prime Minister Theresa May yesterday at question time, giving it to Jeremy Corbyn there. She, of course, offered to resign yesterday if the British Parliament would just pass her Brexit deal. Let's talk about where things are at with Brendan O'Leary. He's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. His recent article in Foreign Affairs is how Theresa May's Brexit deal collapsed. Thanks for joining us, Brendan. Thank you. Good afternoon. You know, it's interesting to pull the lens back a little bit on Theresa May and think about um, where she's taken the country strategically. Um, You know, I think a lot of people are sympathetic to her because she keeps, you know, trying and trying again and just seems plucky and there seem to be no good alternatives and she's got this little plan. But if you pull back the lens strategically, um, uh, it doesn't really look good for her. Do you, how do you view her strategic thinking through this whole p- Brexit period here? I'm afraid I can't give her any high marks. Um, she had an opportunity when she became prime minister to build something of a cross-party consensus. She in particular had an opportunity to recognize that the vote in Scotland and Northern Ireland had been different to that in England and Wales. Both in Scotland and Northern Ireland, very significant majorities voted to remain in the European Union. That meant she could have thought about, early on, differentiated solutions for those places. 
Uh, instead, in her early period in office, um, she articulated the, the cliché, uh, or, or rather tautology, that Brexit means Brexit, but went on to define that as four red lines that could not be crossed, which, which were the UK leaving the customs union of the European Union, leaving the single market of the European Union, leaving the um, freedom of movement exercised within the European Union, and uh, leaving the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Now, that had very profound implications. Not only would the UK be leaving the institutions of the EU, but it would be leaving those four uh, fundamental features. And that meant she could not have what she sought, namely some kind of special arrangement with the European Union guaranteed in terms of access to the, the single market. To resolve those difficulties, she went ahead and called a snap general election. And in that general election, she proved um, as robotic as imaginable and lost a 20 percentage point uh, poll lead to the Labour Party and ended up in a minority government. And in that minority government, uh, to preserve uh, the possibility of getting legislation through, she had to make uh, a special arrangement with a small party from Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party, an uber-unionist party and ultra-Protestant party. Now, that seems to really have messed things up here, if I can stop you there. because You can. Uh, uh, it it seems to be such a crucial point. The DUP right now is not uh, is not going to go along with uh, Theresa May's deal, even if she resigns. They're the they're the sticking point here. Right now, uh, initially she had uh, with the European Union, despite all these difficulties, she came to what I think of as a reasonable compromise in the circumstances. Namely, they agreed that Northern Ireland would be treated differently from Great Britain. Northern Ireland would remain in the customs union and in the single market for all practical purposes. And that meant that any future regulatory barriers between the European Union and the UK would go down the Irish Sea and administered at ports in Northern Ireland and ports in Great Britain. Now, it wasn't an elegant compromise, but it reflected the Remain vote in Northern Ireland. And it also meant that there would be no need uh, to build any fresh physical infrastructure on the island of Ireland, which would be consistent with the promises that they had made. The only trouble with this compromise is that she had not uh, warned her allies, the DUP, in advance. No consultation had taken place. And that, they, that seems uh, like a they really bad strategy right there. <laughs> Indeed, uh, totally bad. And had she consulted with them, she probably feared that they would say no. But if she had consulted with them, they would have had the opportunity to own it and claim it as a special benefit for Northern Ireland, which in my view it is, because Northern Ireland would have the uh, the joint benefits then of being both in the EU, but not, not having voting rights, of course, but, but also being inside the United Kingdom. So instead, she didn't consult with them, um, and they, they called her out and said that under no circumstances would they be supporting her if she went ahead with this particular uh, set of backstop arrangements. That oh, you, you can ask the question why this baseball metaphor came into the negotiations, and I, I won't be able to answer you, but, but it is there. Now, uh, how did she resolve her difficulties? She decided that she would put the whole of the United Kingdom into the same arrangements that were originally designed for Northern Ireland. In other words, the UK would stay in uh, a customs union and single market arrangements until such time as 
a new agreement was made with the European Union or until such time as technological innovations would solve the problem of the border. These technological innovations, of course, are like unicorns, uh, best known to those who who want the problem to disappear. Um, Now, that, of course, created a, a peculiar predicament. It meant that until such time as a future agreement was made with the European Union, the UK would, in effect, be inside all of the institutional arrangements, but have no votes. And the the critics of this arrangement they call it being trapped in the backstop. I'm talking with Brendan Brendan O'Leary. He's professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and we're talking about Brexit. And we we've got a few uh, listener. Uh, questions here, and some of these were submitted by DePaul University study abroad classes uh, that are in Northern Ireland right now with their economics professor Tom uh, Tom Moshean. And uh, this one is from Ashish Danahi, uh, Nicolette Barsis, and Leah Guerrero, and they all have um, kind of the, the crucial question here: Do you think that there is someone competent to take Theresa May's? spot if she does, in fact, resign? Is there any chance that uh, this gambit by Theresa May will benefit the people of the United Kingdom? Well, those are two separate questions. Um, I think there's very little evidence of uh, an alternative conservative leader with a consistent track record in this domain who could successfully unify his or her party. Um, One of the reasons Theresa May has survived um, almost like a a political zombie is precisely because they can't agree on on an alternative successor. The deal she's just proposed to her party is that if she somehow gets her withdrawal agreement through on the third occasion, and there are reasons why that might not happen that I can explain to you, uh, that if she does get it through, then she will resign and then she will have a, uh, there will be a, a contest to succeed her, in which, uh, as one authority has put it, there will be as many contestants as there are contestants in the Grand National. That's the biggest horse race in uh, UK, uh, uh, the UK calendar. So that's that's a big unknown. The the second question is, uh, is uh, about the the goal and intentions here. Now, had the intention been to try and put into effect a a highly controversial referendum result with maximum consensus, um, then people would have a lot of sympathy for her. But instead, she's largely navigated internal Conservative Party concerns. And that's, I think, going to be the long-run historical criticism of her conduct. Um, is there any chance that someone like Michael Gove or Boris Johnson, these are leaders whose names get kicked around there, Boris Johnson, of course, flipped here and says he will vote for the deal and because he seems so eager to be prime minister. Uh, and Michael Gove is someone who seems to have been positioning himself uh, more conservatively to be prime minister. These guys are angling for it. Indeed, there's lots of enthusiasm to take over the post, but only after her deed has been performed that they've got after they've got some withdrawal agreement through. Uh, I think Johnson's credibility is shot in all sorts of ways, not least because uh, of this uh, very recent vault fast. Uh, Gove has probably higher standing and he's performed much better in the cabinet than Johnson did, but he's not exactly the kind of charismatic figure 
uh, that the Conservatives will be looking for to uh, restore their sh- their rather shattered governing authority. Uh, I think we're more likely to see a dark horse emerge than either of those two people. The, the procedure is the Conservatives uh, uh, after May resigns, uh, but we haven't got to that point yet. And, 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 and you don't think we'll get to that point because you don't think our deal well, will pass. If if her deal doesn't go through, and there are two reasons to doubt that, we can come back to that. But if her deal doesn't go through, she stays on until such time as uh, there is a, a negotiated exit. That's that's her threat, if you like. And the reason there are several reasons still to doubt her deal going through. Number one, the speaker would have to rule that she's putting forward some something substantively different. Uh, the the strategic move they appear to be promising is to divide the carefully uh, and legally important withdrawal agreement from the less important political declaration and to say we're just putting forward the withdrawal agreement and therefore somehow it's different from what we put forward before. Now, if I was the speaker, I wouldn't accept that, but the speaker may accept that. So that's her first difficulty, getting the, the third attempt to pass her withdrawal agreement through. And the second difficulty is the Democratic Unionist Party has made clear they're not going to support it um, because they fear that it will jeopardize the union in the long run. And there are also some hardline Brexiteers who would rather, as the saying goes, they would rather fall off the cliff um, than negotiate a soft or compromised version of the UK's departure from the European Union. So it's still very open in my view, though I think if if she does get the chance to – put the withdrawal agreement through for a third time, uh, she'll probably get a a significantly increased vote. But whether it will be enough to pass uh, remains to be seen. We've got another question from a DePaul student, Leah Guerrero, who's studying abroad in Northern Ireland right now. She's curious whether a second referendum is completely off the table. Would it make a difference? There's no doubt it would make a difference. Um, The problem for the referendum option is is twofold. Both of the party, principal party leaderships are reluctant to have a second referendum. And Labour is led by uh, a Eurosceptic, Jeremy Corbyn, but the rank and file of his party are enthusiastic remainers and they would like to have a referendum. Uh, Corbyn has, uh, in recent weeks, engaged in every feasible maneuver to avoid Labour being unequivocally committed to a referendum. So if Labour becomes solid on a referendum as an alternative, uh, and there are enough Conservatives to go along with that option, as well as the rest of the opposition parties, then Parliament could legislate for a second referendum. But we're not there yet. The reason for thinking it would make a difference is straightforward. Uh, One of the explanations of the outcome last time was the low participation of the young and the high participation of the more aged. Uh, Since that time, uh, Remain voters have died at a significantly higher rate than – sorry, Leave voters have died at a significantly higher rate than Remain voters. And the young this time uh, are mobilized to vote again and they're demanding a second referendum. And I think that that factor alone would alter matters. In addition, I think the public's had an education, almost an aversion therapy education in the complexities of what leaving means. And I think that will demoralize the uh, supporters of leave if there were to be a second referendum. 
Brendan O'Leary is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. His recent article in Foreign Affairs is How Theresa May's Brexit Deal Collapsed. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the latest with Brexit. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about birds and tackle the thorny question, what bird species should we save? I'm Jerome McDonald. We're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're living in an era of mass extinctions. One study a few years ago concluded that the rate of extinctions in the 20th century was up to 100 times higher than it would have been without man's impact. Pope Francis maintains that we don't have the right to make thousands of species extinct. But an evolutionary biologist would say and makes the argument that extinction is a part of evolution and natural selection is just making its choices. If you're interested in preserving bird species, it's tough. There are so many species seeing their numbers plummet. How do you choose who lives and who dies? Bridget Suchbury is in town to talk about this topic, and her remarks are called Triage for Endangered Birds, Which Species Do We Save? She talks at the Peggy Notenbart Nature Museum tonight at 6. Bridget's a professor of biology at York University in Toronto. She's the author of the book Silence of the Songbirds, The Private Life of Birds, and is working on a book about the topic of what birds we save. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Can you give us some idea? I imagine a lot of people just have no idea how many bird species are in danger. Yeah, it's amazing. Even just here in North America, some birds that were common when I was a kid uh, are now rare and even listed as threatened or endangered things like wood thrushes, purple martins, tree swallows. Their numbers have just crashed. And in many cases, we know the cause. Sometimes it's habitat loss. uh, Sometimes it's too much predation, dangers on migration, and even pesticides can harm our birds. Does anybody have any kind of criteria about what a good bird to save is and what a uh, bird that we might want to let go is? Well, there's a very controversial approach that's being proposed and is being used in some countries called conservation triage. And they use the word triage to make it sound kind of medically acceptable. It's as though you're on a battlefield and and there's not enough resources to save all the critically wounded. And so doctors are taught how to make those terrible choices of letting a species or person, in this case, who's critically injured, just ignore them and let them die so you can save many others. And in the world of conservation, the problem is that it's not really triage what's happening. We do have to pick and choose, um, but it's not the same as a battlefield or or a mass casualty event, we've known these species have been declining for decades. We've been sitting on our hands and not doing enough to stop them. It's as though we've told endangered species that we've run out of money and we're not sending any more ambulances. I think there's some species that um, seem very charismatic and get a lot of attention. And certainly a whooping crane is charismatic, gets a lot of attention. Great big giant bird. And when you preserve a whooping crane, though, it 
preserves a gigantic wetland. It seems to preserve an area that has uh, that is going to benefit a lot of other animals and and that are in trouble and uh, an entire ecosystem. But some birds, it seems like if the bird goes away, it doesn't matter. Is that true? I think that is true. Again, one of the the controversies is whether humans will give each and every species an intrinsic value of its own, just like we do each other. And the fact is that humans have decided that animals, some animals are more important than others, the ones that are charismatic, the ones that are umbrella species, like you talk about. A bird like the Kirtland's warbler, again, we've done an amazing job recovering this endangered species. There are over 2,000 pairs now. Explain what a Kirtland's warbler is, um, because I bet a lot of people have never heard of it. Kirtland's warbler is a a small, kind of nondescript, ordinary warbler, not charismatic giant bird, um, that lives only really in Michigan. And its numbers got so low um, that it required habitat restoration of jack pine forests and control of predators that were hurting its nests. And these two actions over decades have restored the species to the point that now it's being proposed to take it off the endangered species list, which is why we do this work is so a species can recover. But really, it's a nondescript little warbler, and some would argue we could just as well get along without it. And there's uh, the people who take care of the forest because it needs this jack pine to be in like an adolescent state between 5 and 15 feet tall. And that's the only place it's going to breed. It's so specialized, it's backed itself into a corner. So it costs... Or we backed it into a corner. <laughs> and um, it, it costs like $4 million a year to keep the forest navigated. They also have to put out traps mm-hmm. for the cowbirds, yes. which uh, would lay a baby, lay an egg in the nest, mm-hmm. they they kind of, cowbirds, you explain what a cowbird does. Well, a, a cowbird's the worst mother in the world. They, they never <laughs> lay, make their own nest. They never take care of their kids. Instead, they dump their eggs into the nests of other species and go away. So it's a, it's a pretty dirty trick. And, but it works. Uh, but it uh, helps kill the other eggs yeah, and the babies. Yeah, it does. So it's really bad for the Kirtland's warbling. Without that kind of control, they wouldn't have rebounded. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach, control the predators and control and uh, manage the habitat. So the, the minute human beings stop doing that, it would the Kirtland's warbler would? The Kirtland's apply. warbler is considered what we call conservation-reliant, meaning we can't just walk away from it or it will eventually perish. And the same is true for the whooping crane and even the California condor. We're all in it. You know, we've, we've recovered the species, and it's not, we can't just walk away yet. And when it comes to the, the cost of conservation, yeah, all these programs together probably cost about $10 million a year. Some people would throw up their hands and gasp and say, well, you can't afford that. But, you know, it works out to only about $0.10 cents per person per year in the U.S., so that's the question. Like, can we afford ten cents to save per person to save these three species? And I would say, yeah, sure. Bridget Suchberry is in town to talk about the ter- topic: uh, which species do we save? Triage for endangered birds. She's talking tonight at six at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum. Um, now, you mentioned the California condor, which is an interesting bird. It took a long time, and also is a big, charismatic mm-hmm. bird. Um, in reading about it, I, I was surprised at the lengths to which people went to 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 rescue that that gigantic bird in, in California. Yeah, it's really a, a huge success story that over the decades, 
biologists have learned how to captive breed these species, how to restore their habitat. I mean, we've become really, really good at saving birds from extinction, which is so why it's so ironic that in the last few years, other biologists have turned around and said, oh, pull the plug, let them go extinct. I mean, we have all these new technologies, you know, DNA technologies for enhancing breeding and radio tracking for monitoring animals once they're released. I mean, the scientists have kind of figured out how to do this. And really the challenge is to engage the public to care because these programs are underfunded, which is why we're having to pick one species over another. So if we can engage the public to care more about nature and endangered species through groups like Audubon and Nature Center, um, then I don't think people want these species to go extinct. In the case of the California condor, they had to get people in the general population interested. They had to um, outlaw lead shot uh, in the area where the condor was eating carrion that was shot by lead uh, because the lead would break down in the bird and poison it. Yeah, and it still happens. The birds that they've captive bred and released, about 20% of them get lead poisoning, have to be captured and brought back in for treatment. California's total ban on lead ammunition statewide goes into effect this July. And after a number of years, lead will disappear from the environment, and then the California condors won't need all this intensive care anymore. All right. So but, there's hope. But that was – that's like a miraculous statewide ban on a specific thing. They also taught them to uh, uh, not to sit on telephone poles. Yeah, they teach them to avoid wires so they don't fly into the uh, the power lines and hurt themselves. So, again, there's all these solutions. And they do that before solutions. they release them. Yeah, there's all these solutions. Um, you know, lead isn't good for people and kids either. So like you were saying with whooping cranes, you protect them, you protect the marshes. It's a win-win. I think the same is true for the condor. We don't, it's not good for anybody to be eating game that's shot with lead ammunition. Um, you know, I was wondering about uh, other things that we could be doing to, um, to stop extinctions going on. Are, 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 you know, it always seems like we go first to, oh, we screwed up the ecosystem and we don't have enough land for the birds. But is that always true? Because it seems like at times it, there are things that are killing the birds that are things like cats and lead and um, all sorts of, you know, other predators that have gotten out of hand, uh, mid-level crow predators and things like that that don't have, um, that don't have things killing them. Is that an issue? Yeah, I think what you're saying is it's not that habitat protection is not always enough to save a species. And it's certainly true. Then often the numbers have collapsed because we've taken over the habitat for cities or farms or other purposes. Um, but there are a lot of examples where species seem to have lots of habitat, but they're still disappearing. The purple martin is an example. They they breed in nest boxes like uh, apartment houses which are all over the place on their breeding grounds. And on the wintering grounds, uh, we've done tracking studies to show that they winter in the Amazon rainforest. There's tons of forest left. And so why would a species like this, whose habitat is intact at both ends of their migratory trip, be declining? And the answer is we don't know. It may be a decline in food resources as a result of climate change or pesticides. That's our best guess, but it's still kind of a mystery. All right. So even even um, so, there's like nothing we know to do to to stop the decline in purple martins. It we don't know what the problem is. There's no predator. Is. There's no 
the kitties aren't killing them. The, and that's where research comes the, in. The, the with, birds don't, with, the glass walls don't kill them? No, not with purple martins. And, and that's where um, new technology can help because the tracking technology to be able to follow birds is getting better and better and smaller and smaller every year. And someday we'll be able to put satellite tags on purple martins and find out exactly where they're dying from their migrations from here all the way down to Brazil. And that will help us zero in on what the problem is. Uh, what have you learned about the migration of purple martins? Well, we put tracking devices on where, um, where once the bird comes back the next year, you can take the tag off and reconstruct its 12,000-mile journey all the way to Brazil and back. And one of the biggest surprises was where it winters because all the books, all the articles said they're in southern Brazil in towns and parks. And yet when we did the tracking, every single bird out of 200 birds that we tracked went to the upper Amazon. They um, overwinter along the Amazon River, in the forest, in the treetops. And that was a total game changer for us to try to understand what threats they face on the wintering grounds. I'd always thought it would pesticides, pesticides, blame the pesticides, because we thought those areas they were using were agricultural, but they're not. And so that was a good news story that, that we can rule out that one cause because they're not spending the winter in areas that are occupied by farms and people. Why did, why did we think they were in areas occupied by farms and people? I mean, were oh, people putting up houses down there like no, they do up here? Uh, they, don't, they don't breed down there, but um, they roost in, in, by the thousands in trees and city parks. And some of them will die and fall out of the tree at night. And uh, some of them are banded with, with bird bands. And so people would report the number on the bird band. And if you map out where the bird bands are found, they're found where people are found. So we were getting led astray. All right. Uh, it's, uh, so in some cases, it's just we've got to know more. But uh, this across the bird, across the, the spe- species drop, it seems like there's so many species all dropping at the same time, which kind of shoves you towards climate change, right? Um, I, no, I don't think so. Um, climate change is just getting started. When I was a graduate student back in the 1980s, nobody talked about climate change at that time. And, and when the we birds do now, were dropping then. Birds were dropping then. And so the, the drop predates climate change. And climate change will be kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It'll tip, it's a tipping point for many birds to make things worse. So like, there's, I think the reason so many species are declining is there's so many different causes that we've talked about, habitat loss, predators, pesticides. Each species has its own kind of cocktail of threats, and one of them might be declining for one reason, another for a completely different reason, and that makes our job all the harder. How about insect collapse? Is that a big deal? We think it is for the um, birds like the swallows and the nighthawks and the whippoorwills that eat flying insects only. They have to catch their, their food while it's flying. And there is some evidence that, that the abundance of those flying insects has gone dramatically down with the increase in agricultural areas. But we don't really have the smoking gun. Nobody's really shown that the collapse in insects is causing less reproduction or higher mortality. We're missing that critical link to really prove the story. Do you think people are paying more attention to birds these days and what's happening with extinctions? Is there any – do you see evidence of that? Yeah, I see huge evidence that um, 
A lot of people are aware of this extinction crisis that you let off with. The so-called Anthropocene has been in the news that we're in a new era of in the history of our, our planet. And um, there's, a, I, there's a lot of stories about, you know, in the media, about species on the brink of extinction, whether it's the little vaquita dolphin porpoise in California or a tortoise halfway around the world. Those stories make it into the media because people care. And surveys have shown that, the, at least in North America, the average person does not want extinctions to happen. They're in favor of saving species from extinction. And so I think the general awareness is out there. And we have a sympathy towards the death of a species. And it makes us uncomfortable, most of us, to think that we're not going to help. Bridget Stutchberry is in town to talk about triage for endangered species, uh, for endangered birds. Which species do we save? She speaks at the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum tonight at 6. Bridget's a professor of biology at York University in Toronto, is author of The Silence of the Songbirds and The Private Life of Birds, and is working on a topic about what birds, another book about what birds we save. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck with the talk tonight. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll learn about the therapeutic value of scuba diving for the disabled. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment, where we feature people who make the world a better place. The organization Dive Heart believes scuba diving brings therapeutic benefits to people with physical disabilities. Since 2002, they've offered the thrill of weightlessness to people across the U.S. and in Mexico, Israel, Australia, China, and the Caribbean. Tina Marie Hernandez is here. She's executive director of Dive Heart. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Explain where the idea for this came from. It sounds like Dive Heart was um, something that evolved a little bit. It has evolved. So um, our founder, Jim Elliott, was kind of rolled. Um, he grew up around people with disabilities. His father was a disabled veteran. Um, he had children in his family who had disabilities. And um, he also grew up loving uh, scuba diving. So when he experienced uh, what adaptive skiing could do for people and how that um, improved their outlook and how they think of themselves and changed their perspective of what they could do, he said, what could scuba diving do? Because we have zero gravity that we can deal with. So we work with people, both physical and cognitive disabilities, and he uses the water and, and diving as a way to show people you can get out of your wheelchair or you can do something that people have told you your whole life of all the things you can't do. We work on the things that you can do. All right. I imagine that is an exciting possibility for people who are in a wheelchair all the time. It is. And sometimes when you start talking to someone who hasn't been offered this before, they kind of look at you going, are you a little bit crazy? Because I can't believe I could do that. And we invite them or we show them videos or, or photos that we've taken um, 
of people that have been diving with us and it intrigues them and they get to the pool and they just can't believe it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people look at themselves standing for the first time, be it in a pool or in the ocean, mostly the pool because that's where we start people. But they look down and they get this look of amazement on their faces because they're seeing themselves as either they were or possibly if they've been born with a, a disease or a disability where they've never seen themselves standing, they see it for their first time independently without harnesses or anything holding them up. Um, is there any data on what this does for a person? How, how can you measure psychologically what this means? I imagine, you know, uh, in trauma situations, people who've experienced trauma, they, they, people say they get stuck. You know, if you're depressed, you're kind of stuck in a place and you, it, this is, sounds like something that can unstick you. It can help, uh, help you think differently about, about who you are and what you're able to do. Right. It can re-engage you. It can, um, help someone. We've, we've seen this over and over again. It can help someone who, um, might still be going through their anger phase of, you know, why, why did this happen to me? Or coming back and not really figuring out where they fit in. Uh, it gives people an opportunity to interact with others that aren't uh, necessarily, we're not their doctors, we're not their um, parents, you know, if we're working with uh, younger people. Um, and so it helps them re-engage. For someone who was born with a disability, it really does also change their perspective of what they can do. Um, because those people, a lot of times, are told so many times, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And this is a way of showing them there are things you can do. And we want to see you, you know, blossom in that. So you've worked with... Um blind and deaf people. You've worked with people with autism, all, all sorts of things. Yes. PTSD, um, amputations, um, traumatic brain injury, MS, uh, CP, uh, muscular sclerosis, and cerebral palsy. Sorry. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yep. want to throw letters at people. Um, and you know, people who are missing arms and legs, it, it's everything that we can do. If the doctor can sign off on it, if there isn't a reason where it's going to be a danger for that person um, physically to get in the water, we help them. Now, you, you're doing this in um, pools and then other places. How does that work? How do you get people, you got to get people other places to do this? Right. So um, thankfully, we have hundreds of volunteers who give their time for us to be able to not only go from the pool. So when first is to let people know that this is an option. So that's what this is today, right? And then the next step is to get them into the pool, let them experience gravity-free environment, um, see if they like it, see if they want to pursue it. Uh, we believe in challenge by choice. So the only place some people ever want to be is in the pool. Just let me come back and experience this over and over again. And we're like, that's all, that, that's fine with us. But then there are other people who say, this is really cool. I want to see fish. I want to see what it's like underwater in the ocean or in a, a quarry or, you know, they want to go the next step. So they want to move with the them. current. I bet for moving with a current is, a, is an appealing thing. Yes, people. we use the current, uh, especially in Cozumel. Um, we go down there three times a year and we use the current to help push them. But then they also move their arms and legs as much as they can. And they it's a thrill. And it's where we can also see who might ha people who might have small ability to move on land under the water that you might see them walking 
and they can really do that underwater because of the the help of of the water column and the help of the currents. So we do that and get video of them. And some people are like, I need that right away because my family's never seen me walk or my family's never seen me, you know, stand. So um, we do that. And then hopefully if they really like it, they become our ambassadors and they go all over the place. We have a young woman who um, really got into it and she's been to Thailand on her own now and, and finds dive buddies and she takes our methodology and she shows them, here's how I need you to help me and here's what I need you to do and we're going to go diving. Uh, that sounds excellent. Tina Marie Hernandez is executive director of Dive Heart. They're using scuba to bring therapeutic benefits to people with uh, physical disabilities. So you know, now you have like uh, outposts out there now. Correct. So we have, within the United States, we have um, seven different teams. So we train people, and then they take that training and they bring it to their own communities. So we have teams in um, the D.C. area, and two teams in Florida, a team in Southern California, a team in Oklahoma, and then this is our home team here in Chicago. And then outside of the United States, we have um, a team in Kuala Lumpur and then currently in Borneo as well. So if you go on our Facebook page today, you'll see our Borneo team is kind of promoting uh, getting some volunteers who want to tr- get trained up. So People would probably find it appealing to go to Borneo. I think so. I would love to. <laughs> now, yeah, I know that you do things like have uh, an adaptive dive symposium every year. Yes. So this year is our 10th annual uh, adaptive dive symposium. We're going to have it in Cozumel on May 10th. And uh, it'll be in conjunction with our uh, one of our trips to Cozumel. So when we go to Cozumel, we go for a week. We train up new buddies. We train up new adaptive divers. And we also... Um, go diving every morning. And then that Friday is when our symposium is going to be. So we're going to have doctors from uh, Duke University and here um, from Northwestern University and from Midwestern University who are all going to be speaking about different aspects of adaptive diving and the research that's been done. And Duke University has a um, a research entity there that that, that is doing research on this. Hyperbaric medicine. So that's who we work with. Um, the idea – I know you've got an idea to get a um, a new really deep water pool based on some of the research that says that uh, people um, emit serotonin if they're deeper in water, like 60 feet. And you Correct. want to get a really deep pool. Yes. We want to build a deep pool here in North America. We preferably would like to be into the Chicagoland area because that's where our, our – um, home bases, and we think that Chicago offers a lot of things for people with disabilities. We've got a great transportation system and a great city to bring people to, um, but we want to build it here and start seeing people get the therapy that they can get but and the research we want to do, but in a controlled environment and have it be a warm water therapy pool, the biggest you've ever seen. Uh, we'll do fun stuff too, but we want to get this uh, these experiences to as many people as possible. Who's got the deepest pool now? Is that a- currently? It is Italy, um, and Poland is building one that's supposed to be just a few feet deeper. So um, every year that a new pool goes up in Europe, we have to go deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so you want the deepest, that, and and this would be like seventy, eighty feet deep. No, this is a uh, hundred and fifty feet deep. Oh, that's a really deep pool. It would be, but we would also be doing a lot of other things other than. Um, 
the research, but it, it allows us to really see where we can, you know, what what things can happen for people. If if people with um, there's been a research uh, that happened that showed that people with PTSD, eighty percent of the PTSD symptoms were alleviated during the dive. So if a person with PTSD or severe PTSD could get um, some relief and they went one or two or three times a week, what could that do for their 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 life and improving it for them? Tina Marie Hernandez is executive director of Dive Heart, and I met you last year at the International Service Summit in uh, Naperville. It's going to be in Lyle this year. And there's a lot of groups coming, like 35 groups that are um, NGOs and community service organizations that people could kind of check out if they're so inclined. And yeah, it it's uh, hosted by their local Rotary and Rotary's uh, Service Above Self. And it's something that's been instilled in our um, founder and who he promotes it all the time. So we love participating in this event. The International Service Summit is April 6th in Lyle. It's a little like the old Global Activism Expo. There's going to be panel discussions. And I know there's a keynote from Wendy Perlman, the Northwestern professor. She recently wrote the popular book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. There's going to be a panel discussion I'm going to moderate. Um, Come check out Meet Braveheart and me and a bunch of nice people who are doing good in the world at the International Service Summit. Go to internationalservicesummit.org and you can check Check out Diveheart at uh, their website and the Facebook page and Twitter and all the rest. Well, uh, great to see you again, Tina Marie Hernandez, Executive Director of Diveheart. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about Persian New Year with Nare Safavi. He's got a celebration he wants you to know about. Stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.